You can only really conserve something if you feel its value and if you understand what this is about. We're very often calling soil dirt, and dirt is really not soil. Dirt is what you have on your clothes that you don't want to have. Soil is something different altogether. Soil is an ecosystem that sustains the earth and humanity. Wherever we live in this planet, we are connected by the microbial world. We should respect the microbial world, and we should harness the microbial world for our future. Welcome to Life in the Soil, the podcast by the Plant, Fungal and Soil Ecology Lab at Freie Universität Berlin. To me, a basic principle should be that soil is seen as a common good and that we have a responsibility to maintain or even build the fertility of that soil for the next generation. If you can sort of breed back this ability to make the best use of um, existing helpers in the soil, then there's real gains to be made. And it could be that actually soil fungi help us mitigate some of the effects of climate change. Soil is the habitat with the richest microbial diversity on the Earth. So we should not underappreciate the biodiversity under our feet. These communities, they can help heal these problems we are facing in modern days. Hello, friends of the soil. This is your host, Anja Krieger. Soil is full of amazing life with its own intrinsic value. Just like many other species, we humans benefit from it. Healthy soil not only provides food, feed, fiber and fuel, it also contributes to the stability of the whole Earth system. But living salts are at risk all around the world, as we discussed in the last episode. So this time, we're going to look into a sustainable future. How can we, as individuals and societies, nurture and restore the ecosystems of the soil? Get ready for the final episode of our mini-series on soil ecology. Humans have always had a close relationship with the soil. Long ago, when people settled down and learned to grow and breed crops and animals, they started to shape landscapes and ecosystems. But in the middle of the last century, the rate of change accelerated. From the human perspective, it seemed like a big success story. Since the 1950s, 1960s, when there was this agricultural green revolution, we call it, which is when there were huge leaps forward made in crop breeding in terms of increasing yield and reducing wastage and improving the efficiency of the food crops that we use today. There were also huge leaps forward in technologies made. So things like producing fertilizers that would help your crops grow pesticides so that your crops weren't eaten and fungicides and things like that that just overall improved the efficiency and the effectiveness of agriculture in the way that we're familiar with today. That's Katie Field. Katie is a professor of plant soil processes at the University of Sheffield in the UK. You might remember her from our second episode where she told us about the fascinating age-old relationship between plants and mycorrhizal fungi. What the breeders were inadvertently doing is actually selecting for traits in crops that aren't conducive to forming mycorrhizal associations, or it's certainly not effective mycorrhizal associations. 
So if you imagine you're choosing a crop that's going to be very responsive to a nitrogen-based fertilizer application or phosphorus-based fertilizers, it's going to do well when it has a pesticide added to it. Um, it's also fungicide in, the sim in a similar way. Actually, what you're doing is you're selecting a plant that doesn't like to form an association with a fungus is going to help it get more nutrients in return for carbon because it doesn't need to because it's in the soil next to it. As we discussed in episode two, most plants form relationships with mycorrhizal fungi to trade. The plant provides the carbon and the fungus feeds the plants with nutrients to grow. But if you are a plant that gets pampered by a lot of nutrients from your human farmer, you won't need the fungus anymore. And so actually by doing this, introducing these what seem to be desirable traits in modern crops is actually inadvertently selecting for plants that don't form effective mycorrhizas. And that's a real problem when we're looking at issues facing agriculture today in terms of sustainability. So the development of industrial agriculture led to a situation where beneficial fungi can't help plants thrive anymore. Instead, Farmers offered their plants artificial, chemical inputs, like pesticides and fertilizers. But these new plant partners had to be constantly added to the soil. And they came with a lot of downsides. So we know that fertilizer production application has catastrophic impacts in terms of climate change. The manufacturing processes and the application processes, for instance, make up a horrifying amount of global CO2 emissions. They're also really expensive, so farmers in poorer regions of the world potentially haven't got access to as much fertilizer as perhaps somewhere in a richer portion of the world has, and also they're damaging to the environment. In recent years, awareness of these issues has been growing. And around the world, farmers have started to rethink the way they treat their fields. They are reviving their soils, reducing chemical inputs, and discovering that this saves a lot of money. Feed the soil to feed the plants is the new mantra. So I think in the future, if we were able to successfully harness fungal helpers in the soil to help us reduce our reliance on agricultural inputs, then we'd be looking at developing crops that form highly effective symbioses with these fungi. By stimulating soil life, we expect that the losses of nutrients by leaching can be reduced. So if there are a lot of mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, they can prevent that nutrients such as nitrogen are leaking out, but stay in the system. So that's what we want to do. Just like Marcel van der Heiden, many soil ecologists are looking for ways to restore the natural powers of the soil. Bala Chaudhary from the University of Chicago is an expert on fungi. You might remember her from episode two. Oftentimes, the best thing to promote AM fungi in your soil is first to feed them. And so make sure you have lots of healthy plant hosts, um, native hosts that are there that can provide a carbon source for the fungi. And then just don't disturb them. So avoid soil disturbance and tillage. Tillage, yes, this iconic practice. You might have learned about the plow as one of the first tools in human agriculture. For a very long time, humans prepared the land this way, 
oxen, horses, and later the tractor, dragged plows across the field to open and turn the topsoil. Tilling has many benefits. It stops unwanted weeds from growing. It mixes plant residues, seeds, and manure. It loosens the soil, increases water infiltration, and prepares the seedbed. But plowing and tilling also have huge side effects, as we discussed in our first episode on the soil habitat. They destroy the intricate architecture of the soil, this complicated 3D structure of solids, pore spaces, and tiny tunnels. That has led to the degradation and compaction of soils around the world, to erosion by wind and rain and the loss of carbon to the atmosphere. It threatens many of the organisms in the soil. But there's another way. The idea is to cover the land as much as possible. And this is usually very good for soil biodiversity. It increases the abundance of mycorrhizal fungi. It increases earthworms, so all beneficial soil organisms. And it also can enhance the amount of carbon which is stored in the soil, which would be good for climate change. Marcel van der Heiden and his colleagues at Agroscope in Switzerland are conducting research on sustainable farming. They investigate the amounts of crop that can be produced through alternative practices, such as organic or conservation agriculture. After the main crops have been harvested, cover crops can be planted. This supplies the soil with nutrients, stability and protection from weeds and erosion in the off-season. In addition, more and more farmers are growing a larger variety of plants and crops. If farmers do more crop diversification, that means, for instance, crop rotation, growing different crops after each other, or even mixing crops in the same field, this together with an increased cover, so longer time the soils are covered with crops, that's very beneficial for agriculture. It has a positive influence on soil quality and sometimes also on soil carbon accumulation. Marcel says it cannot be on farmers alone to make these changes. Governments need to make guidelines and rules to support farmers. And customers need to be willing to pay for food that's produced sustainably. A tax on fertilizer and pesticide use could make chemical inputs more expensive, so that farmers would only apply them if really needed. Organic farming and conservation agriculture are promising pathways, if they allow to feed enough people, Marcel says. I really like organic farming because... A range of studies have shown that uh, usually it has a positive impact on biodiversity and on a range of environmental services. However, there's also one weakness of, of organic farming, and that, that is that the yields and the yield stability is usually lower. That means the yield, the amount of food produced per hectare of land, is often 20 to 25% lower. So I think it's very important for organic farming to find ways to reduce this yield gap with conventional farming. Imagine a very warm day and you have large trees. The microhabitats of those large trees would be the shadows that trees create for a lot of herbivores which can come down and sit under those larger trees. If you remove those larger trees, you lose microhabitats. Then you don't have places for those herbivores. Now let's think about soil organisms. 
a lot of solar organisms live in microhabitat. For example, earthworms create a lot of microhabitats where columbulans, fungi, or batid mites, isopods, a lot of those organisms live on those tunnels made by earthworms. If you lose those earthworms, you lose those microhabitats. What happens when climate change brings stronger heat waves and droughts? Madi Thakur told us about the impacts of climate extremes on soil organisms in the previous episode. One way to tackle this might be the practice of rewilding. The idea is to re-establish wild areas in nature and protect the animals that shape the ecosystem. Like earthworms, which build pathways and shelters for other organisms, tiny microhabitats. And imagine when you have those climate extremes, those organisms would really like to live in those microhabitats because those microhabitats are cooler. Those microhabitats uh, cooler in terms of temperature. Well, they are also cool, but also cooler <laughs> in terms of uh, surrounding temperature. So there they would go and find refugia, find the shelter. So rewilding has many such advantages. Uh, of rescuing animals during a very, very warm day or a very, very dry day. So if you lose those organisms which create those microhabitats, we call these organisms ecosystem engineers. So rewilding has to consider ecosystem engineers of various sizes. Attention has focused mostly on the bigger engineers of ecosystems, like bison, for example. The ingenuity of the smaller ones was often overlooked. If rewilding was also applied to the tiny life in the soil, this could have big impacts. If you protect the earthworm in places where it naturally lives, you'll also protect many other organisms. Native earthworms digest organic matter and excrete it as a fertile material, so-called worm cast. This way, they increase the overall health of the soil. Yong Guanzhu, a member of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, first learned about them as a child. I grew up on a farm, so I play with soil, play with soil animals, particularly earthworm. So earthworm usually was used as an animal feed for like uh, ducks or, or other animals. When I was a child, we, we learned to uh, collect uh, earthworms from, from the field and uh, feed the ducks at home. From the farm, Yongguan moved to the city to study biogeochemistry and environmental science. Like him, millions of people around the world have left the countryside. Urbanization is uh, one of the major drivers of environmental changes and also ecosystem changes. With the urbanization, the cycling of the material is to some extent broken because many of the materials we excrete cannot be put back into the ecosystem where we get our food from. So the soil ecosystem is not well balanced in terms of nutrient input and the input of organic materials. Every day, huge amounts of grain, vegetables, fruit and meat from farms outside of town are delivered to hungry people in the cities. This way, the soils in the countryside are stripped of nutrients like phosphorus and organic matter. So the problem is that for the urban population, we have to grow more food from the field. 
And to grow more food, we have to use chemical fertilizers, like nitrogen fertilizers, phosphorus fertilizers. So when we consume the food, we also bring these nutrients and concentrate these nutrients in the urban ecosystem, the westward treatment plants, the landfills. So these nutrients ended up in those areas. Ideally, they should go back to the field where we need the nitrogen and phosphorus to sustainably produce food. So basically, we need a good system to recycle the nutrients between the cities and the farms. To make the urbanization process sustainable, we must uh, reconnect the urban ecosystem with the natural ecosystem. So let the materia move throughout the system in a close loop so that we don't have the accumulation in one side and on the other side we have to import nutrients from far away or from the atmosphere by chemical synthesis. So, so this is the problem we need to solve. There's a challenge. The organic waste from our city's wastewater treatment plants doesn't only contain nutrients. It also contains pollutants and other chemicals, like the remnants of the drugs we are taking and pathogens that could be resistant to antibiotics. So on one hand, we should try to recycle the urban waste material. But on the other hand, we have to make sure that this recycling is safe. One way to do this, Yongguan told me, is to separate the nutrient cycle from the microbial cycle. In other words, return the phosphorus and nitrogen to the fields, but without the bugs in it. One uh, major technology we have been developing is to turn sewage sludge into biochar by pyrolysis. So it's a technology that we heat the sewage sludge at a high temperature, say 500 or 600 degree, with minimal oxygen supply. So the organic material can be converted into uh, more or less carbon. And this, this material still contains phosphorus and partly also nitrogen. And this material is uh, quite porous and also very beneficial to the soil structure. So the indigenous beneficial microbial community can grow better in the soil without the invasion of those bacteria. They might contain a lot of resistant genes. This idea was inspired by a discovery from Brazil. In the Amazon, archaeologists found black and very fertile soils, full of biochar, which is a type of charcoal. These soils turned out to be hundreds to thousands of years old. Terra Preta, Jinjio, the black soils of the Indians, Amerindian populations from before the arrival of the Europeans in South America, have modified their environment to an extent, and specifically the soils, that we still today have large pockets of very fertile, very carbon-rich soils throughout the Amazon basin. 
Johannes Lehmann from Cornell University is fascinated by these ancient soils. Biochar can be produced from biomass, such as leaves, crop residues, nutshells, or animal manure. Heated under the exclusion of oxygen, it turns into an entirely new material that can last for long periods of time. It's a very exciting story of discovery and history. The collaboration between different scientific disciplines, archaeology, geography, anthropology, and soil science and geology. To explore these special soils, Johannes and his colleagues have traveled the Amazon region. You can step out of your car almost anywhere in the central Amazon and ask somebody, a farmer, do you know any terra preta around here? And he says, or she says, yes, yes, just go a few kilometers over there. There's a farmer who has a, has a piece of land. And, and we visited many farmers. One farmer I remember vividly, she told us... Um, She explicitly was seeking out uh, this piece of land because it had Treopreta. And she said she always wanted to come here. Now she's so happy she's here. And since she moved there, she has uh, fewer illnesses. She's uh, happier. She can feed her, her children, not only because she feels that, that she's producing more food, but also more nutritious food. And that makes perfect sense because these soils not only um, have a, a greater production capacity, but they're also full of, of nutrients uh, that we then also find in the crops that are grown on this land. Farmers know about it. The population, the rural population knows about this in, in this area. And for certain, the national research institutions in this region all know about it. Were the ancient creators of these soils aware of what they were doing? There are good reasons to assume that they modified the soil on purpose, Johannes says. And in any case, the discovery of terra preta has important implications for the way we treat soils today. Those soils are remarkable not only because they are fertile and uh, they store a lot of carbon, but also because they tell us something about the interactions of humans with their environment and how they were able to modify their surroundings to sustain what we now appreciate as being a very complex and sophisticated society. And that's really exciting and and should teach us a very important lesson of how humans can survive and thrive in a very challenging environment such as the central Amazon by smart soil management. As you can see, there's no shortage of ideas to save the soils, from farming to rewilding to waste management to growing more trees and protecting the biodiversity above ground. But what can you do if you don't run a farm, a forest, or a wastewater treatment plant? Actually, a lot. Here are some simple steps I learned from the Global Soil Biodiversity Atlas. Look out for the organic products in your supermarket. Consider leaving some branches and plant waste in your garden to compost naturally. Try to reduce your rubbish and recycle whenever possible. Be sure to take any leftover prescription medications back to the pharmacy and to never flush them down the toilet. Look for ways to reduce your carbon footprint. 
consider switching to a green energy provider at home. And whenever possible, use a bicycle or public transportation to get around. Encourage your local authorities to take soil protection seriously and let them know if you notice any problem areas. And there's more. Don't throw plastic in the bioways, for example, so it doesn't end up on the field. As individuals, we can be the movement on the grassroots level. But it will also be on politicians to act and on citizens to demand soil protection. For Richard Bartgett from the University of Manchester, political action is really urgent. I think environmental policy absolutely has to act now. There is little time to uh, ponder on this because something like 30% of all soils on the earth are degraded and those trends are continuing. So we have a commitment or need a commitment to prevent further degradation and to restore those degraded soils. So that needs to be acted upon now because the implications of that soil degradation for people are massive. They're important in terms of food security and also in terms of things like climate mitigation. I think one thing that could help here is if soil is seen as a common good. And this requires policies and support mechanisms at both a local and a national level to ensure that farmers and land users can actually invest in soil care in order to ensure that the soil is left healthy or even increased its fertility for future generations. Soil is not just this inert substrate in which you grow plants so they don't fall over. It's a world on its own. It's full of life. It's full of biodiversity, full of interactions, and it gives rise to some key processes and services for ecosystems and also in the end for us humans. So I think the most important thing that we can achieve or the most important message we can send is, you know, how fascinating soil really is because it's not obvious at first sight right? because you cannot see very much and most, most of it is hidden from our experience and our senses. That's Matthias Rillich, the soil ecologist who invited me into this adventure of a soil podcast. I think once that message is out and more commonly accepted by people start caring about the soil um, and I think this realization really has been happening in the last few years more and more, is my sense of it, uh, both in the science world and also in society. I think there is a growing appreciation for the um, importance and significance of soil. So once this word is out, I think that it will be, it will be easier to implement changes that will benefit our soils. And there's a number of things you can do. I mean, you can conserve the soils that are there by you know setting aside areas or by um, you know stopping basically damaging uh, management practices uh, for example on um, agricultural soils or, or other in other situations in, in the city urban soils for example so you can you can try to remove uh, negative impacts and, and conserve the soils that have not been affected yet you know um, sometimes that may be uh, strange things that you would have to do. I just talked to a, a colleague of mine, Dirk Schulze Marco, who works in the Atacama Desert, and he says these soils are the driest soils on earth, and there's a specific micro microbial community that deals with this extreme drought. And for some reason, because of climate change, there is an increase in precipitation in this area, and so we are, um, yeah, the, the, 
climate change is sort of threatening these communities, strangely enough, that are adapted to this extreme drought. And so how can we conserve them? How can we conserve soil <laughs> is not so easy, right? I mean, um, I think it requires a lot of thought. So conservation is one thing, um, con but you can only really conserve something if you feel its value and if you understand what this is about. So the, that's why I'm saying that the first step has to be uh, creating this understanding and then you can also conserve it once you better understand it. But what you can also do, you can also restore areas that have been damaged by, um, you know, pollution, by agriculture, by, um, you know, being exposed to urban pressures. Uh, you can try to bring these soils and ecosystems back on a trajectory towards recovery. And, you know, restoration ecology is its own field and you know, many factors are important. What are the plants you use? What are the management interventions that you install but in, in the end it is definitely about also restoring the soil and its biodiversity and i think that will that'll take some creative approaches to make progress great thank you so much for for taking me on this journey through the soil i had little clue about this environment and world before i met you so i'm really thankful and i hope our listeners also learned some interesting insights and maybe um are now interested in learning more so there's a lot of stuff out there literature and documentaries and all kinds of things that you can watch or read to find out more about life in the soil and if you want to hear more you can get in touch with us this was episode six of life in the soil with katie field marcel van der heiden bala chaudhary madi takur young guanju and richard bartett Matthias and I would not have been able to make this podcast without our fabulous story consultants. So for the credits, I'm handing over to them. Hi there. I am Moises Sosa Hernandez, and I try to unearth fungi that are hiding deep in the soil. On behalf of the whole lab, I'd like to thank our stellar cast of guest experts for sharing their knowledge with us. My name is Stephanie Maas, and I study the cutest and fiercest of all soil animals, springtails and mites. My thanks goes to Sunfish Moonlight for composing the wonderful theme song. I'm Stefan Hempel and I focus on soil fungi, their communities and their interactions with plants. I'd like to thank the amazing crew at Blue Dot Sessions for their beautiful music. And my name is Eva Leifreit. I work on mycorrhizal fungi, their role in soil carbon cycling and interactions with global change factors. Huge thanks to the Biodiversity Network for generously funding our podcast series. And we thank Kevin Kainers, Maren von Stockhausen, and Sascha Spaschal. Our team also includes Tessa Kamenzind, Milos Bielczyk, Joanna Bergmann, and Gawen Yang. Just visit rillichlab.org to contact us. That's R-I-L-L-I-G-L-A-B dot org. This was our final episode, but do stay subscribed to our feed, just in case. Last but not least, thank you for caring about the life in the soil. Let's keep celebrating it.